Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Critical Theory, a channel that's part of the New Books Network. I'm really pleased to be joined this evening by Alberto Toscano, who will be giving us some insight into his new book, Late Fascism, Race, Capitalism and the Politics of Crisis, which was recently released with Verso Books. Alberto is Limited Term Research Associate Professor at the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University, as well as Professor of Critical Theory at the Department of Sociology at Goldsmiths, where he co-directs the Centre for Philosophy and Critical Thought. Alberto, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So first things first, I'll just kind of note that I really enjoyed the book. Um, And like many of our listeners, I'm sure, I wasn't quite sure what to expect for picking it up. I think, you know, kind of discourse about fascism often gets locked into quite circuitous patterns of, um, you know, arguing about whether or not some specific event or policy decision is or isn't kind of fascistic behaviour, rather than considering why certain far-right tendencies are kind of gaining traction um, as social and economic crises kind of multiply. So um, your book emphasises that kind of, you know, while discourse surrounding fascism and its characteristics has proliferated in recent years, for fairly obvious reasons, it seems to reach this kind of impasse between overly heuristic or kind of reductive comparisons with fascisms of the 1930s and 40s and kind of disavows of extant fascistic tendencies. So, um, you know, lines of argument that use the fact we're not living in this totalitarian state as evidence against fascism's influence in contemporary society. So, yeah, I think your book makes a really kind of generative intervention to these discussions um, by kind of dislodging the tendency to think analogically um, and looking instead at the history of capitalist development via, for example, the black radical tradition and theories of racial capitalism to consider, you know, the dynamic processes that animate fascisms across different contexts. So just to start, could you kind of expand on this a little, tell us why you wrote the book um, and what you kind of believe current discourses surrounding fascism or perhaps, you know, incipient forms of fascism overlooking or kind of maybe mistheorizing? Well, thank you very much, uh, Louise, and I'm glad the book got, uh, at least from your uh, summary, um, some of the response that I was uh, hoping for. Uh, And I think you're very right that the intention of the book was, um, as you put it, to dislodge the debate on fascism from some comfortable, at times cliched and and circuitous, as you said, uh, patterns. In particular, I wanted to suspend or evade the tendency to limit the debate on fascism to the question of definition and identification. Uh, Definition in the sense of debates as to what the typology, classification, or what some people call the kind of fascist minimum, you know, a kind of basic or generic definition of fascism might be. And in terms of identification, I suppose I also wanted to suspend the overwhelming concern of the contemporary debate, at least in a North American or North Atlantic context, uh, with questions such as it, not such as, because this is basically the question that gets asked over and over, you know, is Trump a fascist or is he not a fascist? And that seemed to me to be a singularly um, limiting way of approaching the question. And one that really did not draw on the remarkable wealth of debate, analysis, physiognomy, explanation of both interwar fascisms and um, similar or related uh, phenomena uh, across the globe in the post-war period. 
So the book was in that sense born both out of dissatisfaction and recognition of that um, rich uh, and, and diverse tradition of debate on fascism, which I thought it was worth recovering, foregrounding, and elaborating upon in order to have a richer conceptual and analytical language uh, with which to approach fascism not just as a spectacle or a regime, but as something more like a process, a potential, uh, and a dynamic, which is, you know, open to all sorts of repetitions and, and, and variations and so on. And um, so hopefully, um, I've at least presented the reader with some of the materials and some of the methods, let's say, that might allow one to get past the frame of analogy, the frame of asking, you know, is this moment that we live in, or is this figure that we're obsessed with, or is this incipient regime like Nazi Germany or fascist Italy or not, right? And uh, and I think if I've done, if I've helped, and, you know, lots of people are working in this area as well, obviously, but if I've helped to, to dislodge, as you say, that um, discourse, then um, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> Great, yeah. Um, and you certainly have. So I think where to start, one of the first elements of the book that we can maybe dig down into is kind of the notion of freedom and the mainstream or kind of superficial view of fascism as the enemy of freedom, you know, in its most familiar totalitarian kind of guises. So as you know, in the book, like um, a lot of today's far right ideologues, Trump, <laughs> actually kind of use freedom as their rallying and cry like freedom from COVID-19 restrictions or freedom from the woke mob or freedom from environmental policies, et cetera, et cetera. So do you just speak a little about how your book kind of makes sense of this kind of disconnect? So the um, focusing on the scandalous and I suppose to some paradoxical proposition that there are fascist visions of freedom and images of freedom and desires for freedom um, was aimed in part at undermining the um, identification of fascism with a Cold War model of totalitarianism, of a kind of monolithic Moloch state that um, undermines all uh, liberties and, you know, crushes all initiative. Um, this is not to gainsay or deny that that describes um, rather accurately, you know, much of the grim uh, history of um, historical fascisms. But I think it um, doesn't um, do justice uh, or doesn't enlighten us as to their um, initial and abiding attraction for large swathes of the population across different class divides and strata. And it makes it very difficult to discern how fascist processes or potentials or energies have mutated uh, in periods and indeed in polities like that of the United States where freedom is, um, you know, a dominant um, signifier, let's say, and a kind of um, obvious desideratum for all political uh, uh, positions, right? So to really think about... <laughs> the forms of authoritarianism and reaction that are specific to a period sometimes referred to as neoliberal and that are uh, specific to um, a moment which is not um, that of the all-consuming, all-controlling state. I think it was important also to go back and see how even in the 1920s and 30s, 
um, different conceptions of freedom have been generated uh, within uh, fascist and far-right movements themselves. Uh, freedom to dominate, uh, freedom for some uh, against and over others, but also in a more prosaic sense. And I suppose that's the concern of some of the parts of the book where I briefly discuss uh, the uh, early fortunes of Italian fascism and its rise. Also very straightforward liberal economic conceptions of freedom that uh, certainly in the emergence of uh, Italian fascism in the early 1920s were explicitly um, advanced uh, by that political movement as its economic thinking and its economic policy, right? So that the, you know, mythic nationalist violence and the whole, you know, pageantry of reaction that went with it uh, was uh, explicitly mobilized for the sake of imposing and defending economic liberalism, right? Or what indeed Mussolini called the Manchester state with you know reference to uh, 18th and 19th century political economy. So that was part of the reason. And I suppose the other reason to focus on the question of freedom, um, partly because the book is also a response to North American or North Atlantic debates, was to make the link which is significant also to the discussion of racial fascism between fascism and various strands of uh, settler colonial history and settler colonial ideology, where the subjectivity, the position of the petty sovereign, the delegate of state violence uh, is very crucial, as is their conception of their own freedom. Again, their freedom to subjugate, dispossess, and so on and so forth. And that seemed to me to be formative also of a kind of subjectivity or psychology even of uh, fascism, and that to ignore it is to limit our analysis and our resistance to fascism to a kind of caricature, um, a caricature of um, this um, seamless um fully vertically and horizontally integrated totalitarian machine and that seemed to me to be a sort of useless image in a sense with which to work yeah so i'd just like to hone in a little bit on kind of things links between kind of neoliberalism there like so because it kind of folds into debates about like the nature and and survivability of neoliberalism today given how neoliberal is kind of supported by certain promises of individual freedom and I'm just kind of interested I've seen lots of proclamations about like the death of neoliberalism especially of the past few years mounting crises kind of many of which conceptualize the rise of um like authoritarian figures as reactions to capitalism's breakdown rather than like um heightened versions of kind of temp tendencies that are imminent within capitalism so yeah I just wonder do these you know morbid symptoms that we're witnessing really kind of signal the death of neoliberalism or do they kind of reflect its attempt to um to kind of retain its hegemonic integrity i suppose yeah that's a really great question but it's also a, a really tricky or thorny one yeah. i think the first thing to note is that what to me was one of the phases of most um interesting and, and rich and instructive debate on the returns or repetitions of fascism in the post-war period, the 1970s, and this not just in uh, the United States and Europe, uh, but uh, especially in uh, Latin America, was an extremely uh, rich period for debate on the applicability of uh, fascism to conditions very different to those of the interwar period. It's so a whole wide gamut of thinkers and militants and scholar activists uh, recovered and transformed the discourse on fascism precisely to analyze and respond to, for instance, the emergence of the military dictatorships in Latin America in the late 60s and, and early 70s. Brazil, Uruguay, Chile, Argentina. 
this was not just the purview of Marxist thinkers, though there's an extremely rich uh, debate uh, with all sorts of different positions taken on whether fascism is a term to be used for those regimes that takes place amongst Latin American Marxists in the 70s, which I've tried to write about actually after I finished the book in a in an article that should be coming out soon in um, South Atlantic Quarterly. But this is also something that became a matter of fairly mainstream debate. The um, uh, economist Paul Samuelson, for instance, um, included uh, discussions of what he called um, capitalist fascism or market fascism in uh, even his textbook on economics that had been printed and reprinted since the late 1940s and ha took um, Chile as uh, an emblem of, of what a return to fascism would look like. What he also called in a formulation that I think is very um significant and kind of very illuminating imposed capitalism right so this this notion that at, at a certain pass in the world economy uh, the the persistence and the survival of capitalism you know might require this kind of political fix right a very different political fix than the one that um, emerged in the 1920s and 30s in the context of a mass working class movement, the consequences of the Bolshevik Revolution, um, desires for full employment, war economies, etc. Right. So this this would be this market fascism, a, a, a fascism very much for, so to speak, uh, neoliberal uh, times. Right. And even 10 years before that. Um, the Polish economist Michael Kalecki, in an article called "The Fa Fascism for Our Times," had, you know, in response to both the pro-Algerian uh, far right in France, but also the Goldwater uh, campaign in the U.S., had talked about this. You know, the new the new fascism is not a, a fascism um, aimed at uh, a kind of strong welfare state that captures the idea of. A worker state from the left and turn it to racial ends, but rather it has this kind of laissez-faire or market-oriented uh, vision. So now if we turn to um, the present, I think the um, claims about the death or demise of neoliberalism are, you know, massively premature to say the least. I think a certain modality of it a certain figure, a certain optimistic, pseudo-progressive um, version of neoliberalism uh, is, of course, um, you know, if not, you know, mortally wounded, at least uh, um, hardly in, in a kind of healthy state. Um, but in terms of the actual political projects and practices of authoritarian and far-right movements uh, across the globe, and especially in terms of the interests and fractions of capital that are supporting them to the hilt, it would be very difficult to see this as in any way a correction or response uh, or uh, overcoming, right, of, of okay. the terms of kind of you know, market supremacy and rollback of anything public and social that we've come to recognize as part of uh, neoliberalism. Now, what is significant is, of course, the fortune, the, you know, propagandistic effects of a kind of pseudo resistance to um, market imperatives and market fundamentalism, which of course takes very familiar, disturbingly and depressingly familiar forms in, um, you know, anti-Semitic conspiracies about globalists and uh, accounts of the alliances of supposed metropolitan elites, uh, you know, with the wretched of the earth or what have you, right? So that that's definitely part of the palette of a increasingly integrated international far right from Orban to Trump, etc. are these uh, visions of um, nationalized um, 
economies, uh, you know, for the sake of a, you know, white majority or, or if not white majority, uh, an uh, ethnic or religious uh, um, uh, majority, imagined majority population, like in the Indian case and what have you. But these are in no way um, aimed at changing or affecting the rules of the game, except for certain um, protectionist or restrictive gestures that I think are entirely, you know, compatible, you know, with uh, the furtherance of most aspects of neoliberalism, right? So it's not like um, extremely uh, violent and, and, and regressive and racially coded policies of, you know, restriction of movement of people or workers or migrants or refugees are incompatible with neoliberalism, right? That, that, mm -hmm. that would be a very dubious proposition, right? Um, so I think in that sense, um, we can still think of the contemporary reactionary cycle or neo-authoritarian moment or indeed late fascism as something which is by no means um, counter to uh, neoliberalism, but in, in, in many ways, um, a mutation of its political terms, right? Or mm -hmm. of its political parameters. And in that sense, I um, draw on it briefly in the book and I've, I've reviewed their work uh, elsewhere. I do think, um, while I'm not in agreement with, you know, their entire theoretical output, let's, let, so to speak, but I think that, um, uh, Pierre Deldo's and Christian Laval's uh, recent uh, work on neoliberalism as civil war actually is uh, quite compelling to see those continuities, right? See mm -hmm. those continuities from that 70s moment that even as mainstream a figure as Paul Samuelson saw as the potential emergence of a market fascism to now. And I think especially if we think of the massive... Um, forces and interests uh, arrayed behind figures like Trump or Bolsonaro or Orban or Modi uh, and their integration uh, into a um, whole network of um, foundations and uh, businesses and multi-millionaires and billionaires, etc. cetera, uh, the very idea, right? <laughs> These are movements that are aimed at, um, you know, interrupting the, you know, dominion of uh, profit and plunder is, um, is suspect, to say the least, right? Mm -hmm. uh, of course, they might lean towards more, you know, um, gangsteristic or more racket-like forms. But again, it's not like there's anything incompatible between, uh, between that and, uh, and what we've come to call neoliberalism, right? Unless we are treating neoliberalism in this uh, streamlined, um, sanitized uh, version, right? Uh, now, instead, if we, that's why I think thinking of the 70s conjuncture in Latin America in particular, but of course, uh, we can also think of the relationship between neoliberalism and authoritarianism uh, in, um, you know, Africa or Southeast Asia or elsewhere. I think if we think of the the violence required to impose capitalism uh, under conditions of social conflict and inequality, then I think we see a lot more continuities than discontinuities, and we can develop a healthy skepticism towards the idea of a death of neoliberalism. Now, we might want to speak of a death of the kind of neoliberalism that, or, or at least a, a, a weakening of the kind of neoliberalism that we knew in its, uh, you know, buoyant, optimistic phase of um, Blair and Clinton and, you know, um, the, the 90s WTO or what have you, right? But that doesn't mean that we've sort of exited um, that frame. Great, thank you. Um, very com comprehensive. Um, and I think maybe now is a good kind of moment to look a bit deeper into what you were talking about with racial capitalism earlier. Um, and, you know, the kind of 
explicatory potential of the black the black radical tradition when it comes to kind of making sense of fascism within the broad history of capitalism which i suppose is kind of always really racial capitalism um so could you tell us a little bit more about kind of your rationale behind homing in on figures like du bois uh cedric robinson angela davis um for thinking through late fascism and why as you know in the book um the prism of race can i'm going to quote you here uh, help us to interrogate and displace the normative conviction regarding the absolute antithesis between fascist despotism and liberal democracy yes so i suppose there's two principal dimensions uh across which I think um, the contribution of black radical theorists to the debate on fascism is vital. One has to do with um, both a temporal and a geographic expansion of the frame through which we think of fascism as a process and a potential. And this is very um, evident in George Padmore's discussion of colonial fascism, later picked up by Walter Rodney. It's obviously very critical to the ways in which W.E.B. Du Bois um, maps out the not just the fascistic dimensions of the counter-revolution of property in the wake of um, the U.S. Civil War, the general strike of the enslaved, radical reconstruction, but also the way in which he sees that process as then um, formative in uh, often disavowed ways of the structure of imperialism of the color line more globally speaking in the 20th century. And therefore, given the obvious uh, genetic link between imperialism and fascism, also of fascism as we know it, let's say, in the 1920s and 30s as this phenomenon emerging in um, late uh, latecomers, right, to the uh, colonial or imperial game, right, in Italy and Germany, and, and formulated in explicitly racial terms, but also, certainly in the case of Germany, with explicit reference to the United States and its politics of dispossession, genocide and frontier dispossession, you know, as a, as a model, right? So that um, thinking of fascism in a kind of long durée or of uh, fascism before fascism or of the elements and origins of fascism um, prior to its emergence, which of course is something that we can also find in a different guise in something like Hannah Arendt's discussion of imperialism and her origins of totalitarianism, um, though in more limited ways. Um, I think that seems to me very uh, important to have um, better understanding of what the potentials for fascism are in our own moment and where they come from, right? Um, especially when it comes to having discussions, of, obviously, about uh, uh, fascism in um, non-European contexts, right? And the second dimension, uh, which is already prominent in the discussion of colonial fascism, but then becomes really uh, crucial in, amongst other things, the exchange between George Jackson and Angela Davis um, in the late 60s, um, early 70s, um, is the question of perspective, the question of uh, differential experiences, I think I put it in the book of fascism, the idea that um, societies that present themselves and that are imagined and lived as liberal uh, may and do um, engage in um, forms of domination and uh, oppression and racial terror that are continuous with and generative of fascism, except that uh, they are at least, you know, for the time being, um, only uh, meted out against you know uh, certain racialized sec sectors of a, of, of a of a given population, right? And so that um, what is lived as 
liberalism by some may be uh, lived by as fascism by others, right? And of course, the history, um, the exclusive and restrictive and discriminatory history of you know um, liberalism in its colonial and settler colonial context and and in its massive. Uh, property and class dimensions in 19th, 19th and early 20th century Europe as well speaks to that, right? Um, to that discriminatory kind of dimension. So those two aspects together, I think, are really important, again, to dislodge or unsettle um, a cartoonish juxtaposition between a um, fascism presented in the in the guise of uh, the most you know genocidal freedom uh, removing form of totalitarianism uh, and on the other hand a liberalism uh, presented in a sort of you know sanitized fantasy version right and so um you know, as if we're in this kind of sort of saving Private Ryan version of history, right? Like this sort of, yeah, the United States, uh, uh, you know, as the paladin of, of liberalism, World War II as carried out in order to end the Holocaust, which of course it wasn't, and et cetera, et cetera. And on the other hand, uh, a fascism that has no links, right, to mm -hmm. liberalism or capitalism or settler colonialism, et cetera, right? And so I think that... Um, perspective that comes from from the black radical tradition as both theory and practice, uh, for instance, the practice of anti-fascist solidarity that developed in the response to the Italian uh, invasion of Ethiopia in the 30s, uh, or indeed the um, black liberation and abolitionist practices that came to the fore uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. I think that's really uh critical for me and and i think was really the the reason uh, or or one of you know one of the main uh energies or motivations behind writing the book was to um to try and and bring that forward into the broader debate and make a strong argument for its um centrality Mm -hmm. I have a question kind of about how you approached materials, I suppose, in terms of, you know, the broad kind of body of psychological and psychoanalytical oriented theorizations of fascism in the book. Um, and which of these kind of ideas might helpfully supplement, you know, Du Bois's idea of fascism as the counter revolution of property and whether there are any that are kind of that might actually kind of distract us from the ultimate inseparability of capitalism and fascism sorry that's a really general question i just realized but yeah well i mean i suppose you know du bois was after all the one who um who used the formulation of psychological wages right so i i, I guess uh you you can very much draw a um if not a psycho psychoanalytic then at least uh, uh, a lot of psychological insight into the subjective constitution of a kind of um, uh, racial fascist and settler position right. from um, from uh, even Black Reconstruction itself, right? Um, I've I've tried to work a little bit more on that. In fact, I think some of the chapters in Black Reconstruction that discuss the ways in which racial terror also served to conscript um, poor white populations into the elite project of the counter-revolution of property uh, are really important. Um, du Bois has all these discussions about what he calls the shape of fear in uh, in the formation, right, of, um, of, uh, of an inter-class kind of reaction, right, to to the possibility of emancipation in the South. Now, the debate around um, around the psychological dimensions or, or mass psychology um, or the unconscious even of, of fascism is very um, 
tricky, right? It's a rather bit of a minefield in many ways. Um, mm. The most obvious reason, which I think even most of the partisans of the significance of psychology or psychoanalysis to the study of fascism recognize is the risk of underestimating the structural and the economical and the geopolitical dimensions of fascism as a process, right? As though it were in some kind of idealistic and strangely individualistic form, the product of bad thoughts and bad dispositions and uh, bad pedagogy or what have mm -hmm. you. Um, so even um, when the members of the so-called Frankfurt School or the Institute for Social Research in Exile, um, in the context of the Studies and Prejudice Project, Horkheimer and Adorno and Loventhal and Guterman and others, uh, turn to this question of what we've come to know as uh, the authoritarian personality. Um, I think the original title of the book was supposed to be The Potential Fascist, which is a little bit punchier. Um, they um, also constantly correct themselves or present these kind of caveats, right? Like, yes, it's significant to analyze, dissect what the components of this subjectivity may be, but this is only going to be um, of uh, political note um, because of phenomena and crises that are happening, you know, at, at the level of, you know, the social totality and at the level of political economy, right? Um, so I think that's, um, you know, that's something that's uh, worth um, always keeping in, always keeping in mind in, in our discussions. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of rich insights coming from a whole welter of discussions of the psychological and especially as they try to advance in the, in the final chapter of the book, um, I think, um, the presence of questions of, um, of desire, of gender and sexuality and discussions mm -hmm. of fascism, especially of contemporary fascism, uh, can't really be evaded and should be, um, you know, treated as, um, as, as a primary significance, right? And I think in some sense, I mean, maybe one of the features that I, that I am um, kind of advanced in the book of what I term late fascism is that there does seem to be such an overwhelming uh, presence of these kind of super structural factors in the contemporary far right. Um, uh, even when, you know, or especially when it enters into the so-called corridors of power that uh, I think we we can't but um, reflect on, uh, on, on the centrality, uh, or if not the centrality, at least the prominence, let's say, um, of uh, questions of um, desire and, and, and gender and sexuality and, 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 and psychological and psychoanalytic dispositions more broadly within it, right? Because after all, these are um, movements or uh, phenomena or indeed sometimes regimes, which for all of their bluster about you know, the globalists uh, or about the elites, etc., cetera, uh, have, of course, no uh, interest and no intention of transforming social and class relations, uh, except for uh, engaging in racially exclusive or ethno-nationalist policies, right? Uh, and therefore are, you know, um, like... <laughs> Uh, many of the fascisms and authoritarianism of the past um, are uh, very much prone uh, to um, this massive emphasis, right, on um, what we've come to now call like, you know, culture wars, right? And and the one way of thinking about it to go back to the Du Bois is that, you know, there's this kind of inverse proportion, right, between their capacity to um, to distribute even to their own, you know, ethno-racially exclusive audiences real wages, and therefore there's a tendency 
to massively inflate the psychological wages, right? By uh, putting all of the emphasis on, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, gender neutral bathrooms or school curricula or what have you, right? Uh, while uh, not just reproducing, but intensifying the massive inequalities and the, you know, elite monopoly of social power, et cetera, right? So I think that's also part of the reason that we we um, cannot but also turn to those um, to those uh, debates and to draw on on those discussions of of the psychological dimensions um, of uh, of fascism and authoritarianism. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, and that was really helpful for me, actually, the last chapter talking about kind of the libidinal aspects of, of, of fascism and thinking about how, you know, what we might traditionally conceptualize as a kind of a brute patriarchy, um, has been kind of imminent within fascism, but it's actually, there's so many other ways in which that kind of libidinal energy, I suppose, gets expressed. And yeah. Um, so. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I did want to touch on is, um, again, we have, rather streamlined and at times rather caricatural versions even of what mm. historical fascisms and, and Nazism's politics of sexuality and gender were. Um, mm. And we have a, an identification at times of fascism with um, simple, straightforward uh, sexual or libidinal repression, which of course is not very enlightening when we look mm. at how it operates in the in the real world, right? And even what patriarchy and misogyny mean today, say in the context of the um, U.S. right and far right, is by no means you know some linear reimposition of um, bygone or traditional gender norms right so i think that's also worth attending to mm -hmm. um we're running slightly close to time so i just want to draw attention to what i imagine will be kind of a relatively unknown figure in the intellectual history of fascism that you kind of home in in on um in one of the latest chapters furio yezi i don't know if i'm saying his name correctly yeah um who developed this kind of concept of ideas without words um so could you kind of expand on who he was what he meant by this idea and how they kind of this idea kind of operates in you know subsuming people into far-right kind of politics so furio yezi was uh extremely uh interesting and unusual intellectual figure in uh in italy uh absurdly um precocious uh, scholar and intellectual. I think he was a published Egyptologist and archaeologist in his teens after dropping out of high school because it clearly wasn't uh, stimulating enough for him. And um, then turning especially to the study of myth and to the study of German literature. And so uh, he published uh, widely in that area. Some of his work um, has been translated in the context of a series that I edit for the uh, publisher Siegel Books, the Italian list. So um, first of his books that I uh, translated was called uh, is called Spartacus on the Symbology of Revolt on the 1919 um, revolution or failed or repressed revolution in in Berlin uh, and um, the place of, of myth and, and literature in that and then another book called Secret Germany and another one called Literature and Myth and you know, he has a very wide set of interests. So in the late 70s, uh, shortly before he died in a um, some freak accident in his in his home uh, at a very young age at the, um, 39, I believe, uh, Yezi published a book called Right Wing Culture, where he tried to apply his um, knowledge of uh, mythology and his abilities as a you know literary critic and analyst to the study of um, the cultural production of the far right, especially when it um, 
trespass into his own scholarly domain, that of myth and mythology. So um, amongst the figures dealt with is um, Oswald Spengler, the author of Decline of the West, who is the one from whom um, Yezi takes this expression of ideas without words. And um, also Mircea Eliad and uh, Julius Evola and so on. And, and, and um, Yezi tries to map out um, the place in uh, the culture of the right and of the far right of two dimensions. One is what he calls the religio mortis or the religion of death or the centrality of figures and myths of sacrifice in uh, far right um, thought and intellectual life. Uh, and the other one is this um, idea of what he calls the language of, yeah, the language of ideas without words, in a sense, um, both foregrounding the role of mythology, but also the kind of anti-intellectualism or anti-conceptualism, or we could say to some extent kind of irrationalism of the right, where one both engages in extremely, as in the case of, you know, Spengler's near infinite decline of the West, you know, sort of erudite uh, uh, historical disquisitions, but then at the same time constantly reiterates that the abstract concept cannot know what, in some sense, the blood or the race or identity or notions that nevertheless are not concepts and that are not open to rational analysis give one insight into, right? So this kind of centrality in certain discourse of the of the far right, of uh, myths of a kind of instinctual intuition, let's say, of the ultimate components of reality, of real truths, et cetera, that somehow short circuit or deny intellectual analysis and, and abstraction, right? And so uh, Yezi works through a lot of these um, cases in, in the book. And one of the things that I think is interesting about his, um, his emphasis on what he calls the religion of death and, and also the way that he reads figures like Eliad or Spengler or Evola is that I think he also makes us attuned to what we could see as the very significant pessimist uh, and at times nihilist strain, right, within the within the far right, um, this sense of almost uh, an obsession with and at times like a desire for defeat, right, mm -hmm. and decline and this uh, the sense in which um, the the mentality and the, the kind of psychic life of the far right is not just about, you know, reimposing um, imagined prior modes of domination or privilege or deference, etc., but also involves um, a, a kind of at times rather obscure enjoyment of scenarios of decline or or degeneration or sacrifice and so on and i th i thought i found that rather um a, a, an important um perspective um and i i think that's definitely very true if we think of the many of the intellectual origins of the far right in europe in the early 20th century um was the presence, right, of all of these figures and myths of decline, defeat, sacrifice, and a kind of combination of victimology and suprematism, right? Um, which, you know, then kind of gets them synthesized into, you know, these, these mythic figures, right? Like mm -hmm. white genocide or, you know, the forgotten man or et cetera, right? And I think it's important to, to attend to that um and to see the uh the animus against visions of progress or emancipation or indeed we could even say against uh images of happiness as quite formative to much of the yeah much of the psychic life of the far right yeah exactly um and yes's work seems really interesting i'll check it out when i can yeah do um so i think 
we're kind of yeah coming to time now so my final question is basically is there anything else you want to say about the book or is there anything you want to talk about that you're working on at the moment um in terms of what i'm uh working on right now uh i suppose i've tried to follow up as i uh suggested earlier on some of the the themes of the book that i thought were worth um elaborating on further so since i've uh, finished it i i wrote a couple of other pieces again as i said one on on the place of the kind of psychology of um, racial terror in Du Bois's Black Reconstruction, and then reading actually that book in a in a more concerted way as a theory of fascism, even when it doesn't necessarily use the language of fascism so prominently, both uh, in terms of that psychological dimension, but also linking those histories of U.S. Uh, racism to the global formation of fascism, and then the other work that I've tried to engage in is really to think more systematically about um, the analysis of fascism in the 70s in Latin America, because as mm -hmm. I said, I think it really opens up important vistas and perhaps ones more relevant to our moment about the nexus between um, fascism and, and, and different moments and, and modalities of capitalism. And I suppose that's a part of the of the book that I think, or the part of the the question of fascism that I I you know didn't develop uh, probably sufficiently in the book, and that I'd like to maybe deal with more systematically, is the the different ways in which questions of political economy and 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 especially of imperialism play within the discussion of uh, and the analysis of fascism, and you know hence my mention of. Kaletsky and Samuelson, and actually seeing how much these um, these issues were also part of uh, different moments, right? Uh, debates amongst uh, even economists or or, or political economists, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, in order to really, yeah, open up um, and and complicate the relationship, let's say, between the libidinal dimensions and then the structural dimensions of this phenomenon, right? Which uh, is a very thorny problem, but I think worth confronting. Great. Thanks, Alberto. Um, hey, thank you very much, Luis. Thanks very much.